Hey, I'm Joe. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I work with the uh, college and young professionals group that we call the Greenhouse. Glad you joined us. This beautiful, woo, that's great. Um, we, uh, you know, we have a beautiful day and it's, a, it's a, just a, a blessing for me that you chose to be here. And so if I haven't met you yet, I'm going to be sticking around here afterward. Not that you probably want to stick around any longer, but I'll be up here. Love to connect with you. I just finished up some time uh, away up north and I had one of the craziest things ever happen in my life. If you know me, you know I love to fish. And so I was um, at a, I, I, I spent a lot of time fishing and I, I parked my, my boat and my truck, or my trailer and my truck at a launch. And I use a private launch. And so not a lot of other people use that launch. And um, another important detail is I just had updated or upgraded my truck. I bought an F-250. I used to have an F-150 and this is a diesel. And so after one of the days I was out fishing, I came back to the house and I was cleaning things up and I was putting things away. And I noticed that there was this little drip coming from under the truck. And I thought, oh my gosh, like I've never had a truck drip ever in my life. And um, this is not a new truck, but it's the newest truck I've ever owned. And so I thought, oh my goodness, did I just miss something? Like when I was inspecting the truck before I bought it, did I just totally blow that? Um, and so I got up under the truck and I, what I found uh, just, just totally just blew me away. Someone had cut the DPF lines, the DPF filter, the DPF sensors, the whole DPF system off of my truck. They used a Sawzall to cut off before and after on the exhaust system. They stole like this significant part of my truck. I, I, I was just blown away. And I just, I was like, I panicked. I was like, I got it. I need a truck because you can't really tow a boat without a truck. Um, and so I drove home with that system not working, which was a miracle because I wasn't supposed to be able to make it back home. Anyway, I'm sharing all that with you. Not so that you'll feel bad for me, but that this real life situation that just happened to me this past Monday ties directly into what we're looking at today in the Word of God. See, all too often, we live as if everything is fine. You know, we're comfortable. Now many of us are vaccinated, so we feel safe, at least safer than maybe we felt. Our 401ks are tracking in the direction we want them to track. Life is good. You know, the, the brand life is good. You see the shirts, you see the hats and stuff. The truth is we're in a war. There's this spiritual battle raging all around us. And we don't even come to grips with that until someone steals something off of our truck. That, that system's worth over $6,500 and it's gone. And so there's a spiritual battle that's, that's going on all around us. It starts in the heavenly realms and it makes its way down into the physical realms. It, we're, we see things like, you know, theft and vandalism and all kinds of evil and wickedness happen. And unfortunately, again, we, including myself, we often don't, we don't realize that this is our reality. And so today we're going to continue in this regardless series from the letter Paul wrote to the Philippians, the Philippian church, and see a key theme in what Paul is trying to communicate to this church. And that's this. God's desire for his church is that we fight together in the war that we're in. That we stand together regardless. We are part of God's army, Jesus's team. And we're to link arms together as we fight an unseen enemy. Our struggle, it, it, we, we got to be real clear on this. Our struggle is never against flesh and blood. It's never against people. 
It's always against the spiritual forces of evil in the, in the heavenly realms. We, we oftentimes miss that and we start to think, you're my enemy, but you're not my enemy. And the people out there aren't, aren't our enemies. And so the series is titled Regardless, as Paul is essentially saying over and over again that we as followers of Jesus can be regardless kinds of people. What that means is that our circumstances don't have to dictate our attitude or our response or our mindset. That when you find a part of your truck has been stolen from you, you can have joy even in those circumstances. Joy even in the midst of a spiritual battle, even in the midst of an inconvenience. Because of Jesus and his gospel, we can have a different life experience because we know Christ. We can rise above the curveballs life throws us because of our hope in the resurrection from the dead and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We no longer have to be circumstances-driven kinds of people. People whose joy is dictated by the ebbs and flows of life. Now, this is going to be uh, at least a two-parter because when you start looking at what Paul's writing here, it, it, he starts in, in chapter 1, verse 27, and really he goes all the way up and through chapter 2, verse 11. So I'm not sure exactly how it's going to break, break things up, but we're going to focus today and examine what it would look like for us to fight together for the Lord Jesus Christ as a local church. Paul is going to give us three key thoughts for what it would look like to fight together regardless. And so I'm going to pray real quick, and then we're going to dive in. And God, we do thank you for freedom. We thank you that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. We thank you for the fact that many people have laid down their lives so that we could be free. The freedom always comes at a cost. And so we just thank you that that, that is true for us today. And ultimately, again, we just exalt you that we are free because of Jesus. And we want to live in our freedom. And we pray that today as we learn your word and as we uh, look for ways to apply it in our lives, that we would learn and, and to have great, even greater freedom. And so we just thank you for our time today. We pray that you'd empower us um, and you'd open our eyes in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible or a web-enabled device, you can flip or tap your way to Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27. And I'm going to read these four verses together, and then we're going to kind of pick it apart. Verse 27, Paul writes this. He says this, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of, of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And so we start, we start with uh, Paul's first key thought, and it's this. We fight best when we live out the gospel. And so there's a, a really kind of a broad application that we could have here. But Paul's specific concern was that the Philippian church take a united stand for the gospel, that they would be a witness to the world by their unity. According to one commentary uh, I looked at, a, guy, a scholar named Richard Mellick Jr. said that Paul usually used the verb walk. The, the verb would be peripateo, would be the, the Greek word, to describe a Christian's conduct. 
But here he used the verb politio. And that's a political word meaning conduct yourselves as citizens or live as citizens. And so when Paul used this political verb, what he's doing is stirring up his hearers to think about their identity as it relates to their citizenship. If you remember, being a Roman citizen back in that time frame was a huge deal. There's a reference in the book of Acts where Paul is about to be whipped and he plays his Roman citizen card. You know that? Remember that reference? And, and he's, as he's about to be whipped, he's like, wait, wait, you can't do that. I haven't gone through the proper trial here. I'm a Roman citizen. And the, the guard who was going to do this to him was like, whoa, I didn't realize that. I had to pay for my Roman citizenship. And Paul's like, I was born a Roman citizen. And so that gives us a little bit better understanding of what a person listening to this letter back in the first century might have heard. That you and I, we miss today as, our, as modern hearers. But the whole point of all of that is this, because you and I are citizens of another world. We're to live out that citizenship here on earth. We're to be representatives of that land, of that kingdom, and ultimately of that king. His name is Jesus. But see, here's our problem. Many of us are confused on our identity. We're children of the king, and yet we live as orphans. We're citizens of heaven, and yet we act like this is our home. And we don't know who we are, and so we struggle to live out our identity as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Warren Wiersbe says this. He says, Paul is essentially saying, behave the way citizens are supposed to behave. But the problem is that the world sees Christians who worship on Sunday and then the rest of the week they act just like the rest of the world. And nothing undercuts the gospel message and our ability to influence more than Christians whose lives aren't aligned with the gospel. If you talk to somebody about the Christian faith, and I, I've spent a lot of time in, in my ministry career doing that, just talking to people about the faith and, and their perspective, you'll often hear them say something like they've had a negative experience. The reason they don't want to pursue this is because they've seen people live a certain way and it's been a real turnoff to them. And so our conduct is huge to the advancement of the gospel. Again, we're in a spiritual battle and the New Testament teaches that lost people are enslaved to the evil one. To the devil. And so we have been enlisted to be part of God's rescue effort. And one of our greatest weapons against the enemy is our consistent life as a follower of Jesus. Now, before you leave thinking that you have to walk around on pins and needles and never make a mistake as a Christian, we have to go back to the gospel and reevaluate what it would mean to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus. See, the premise of the gospel message is that you and I are broken, right? We're sinful. We're fallen. We're far from perfect. I mean, we're far, far from perfect. In fact, there's only one who is perfect. And he took our sin onto himself to make us perfect so that we could become the righteousness of God. So that we could be reconciled with God here and now and one day walk in the presence of God forever. 
And so as we stand before God, we're, we're righteous. And yet the truth is, in this life, we still wrestle with sin. You want to read about that? You can go home and read Romans 7. Paul talks about that. It'd be a great little bit of reading it for this afternoon. And so because of the gospel, because we've been forgiven, because we've been set free, we're no longer slaves to our flesh, but we still sin. Our sin nature has been cut off, but we still drag it with us through this life. And so we have the propensity to, to still do uh, wrong, to sin, to commit evil. And so when we think about living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus, three things come to my mind. The first one is this. The gospel is all about humility. It's all about humility. You didn't do anything to earn it. You don't deserve it. God gives you a gift. It's all because of who God is that you and I are in Christ. It's all because God is rich and generous with his mercy. That's why he rescued you. 1 Corinthians 4 says this. I've been thinking about this verse a lot over the last year or so. Paul writes this. He says, what do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And generally what Paul's saying there is like, everything we have has been given to us. If you have a brain, God gave that to you. The family of origin you grew up in, the reason you're successful in life is because God has placed you in places so that you could be that way. It's not because you somehow made yourself amazing. You've been given a gift. The same is true of the gospel. God gave you a gift. And so humility is foundational to the gospel, which means humility needs to be the framework that we approach life from. When we interact with anyone, we come humbly. Humility is really a key mark of the gospel. That's my first thought. The second one is this, because humility is the foundation of the gospel, we're to be quick to apologize when we fail. And see, I think this is, this is, this is huge because the reality is you're gonna fail. How do you like hearing that on a Sunday morning? You're going to fail. But the problem is, I don't think the world expects you to be perfect. I think what they want is they want to see, what are you going to do when you, when, you, when you wrong me? How are you going to make it right? Are you going to make it right? And so when we hurt people with our words, we come humbly and we ask for forgiveness. When we fail morally, we confess and we ask for forgiveness. When we wrong someone, we apologize. We figure out, how, is there any way we can make this right? Asking for forgiveness is a key mark of the gospel. And then my third thought was this, when someone hurts you, you freely forgive them. They don't even have to ask for forgiveness. We freely forgive them. Our willingness to forgive others flows out of the gospel and that we've been freely forgiven. And so giving forgiveness is a key mark of the gospel. And so how, how we live has a profound impact on the mission Jesus has given us. And remember, we're in a fight. It's the good fight of, of faith. I love how Warren Wiersbe says it. He says this, the greatest weapon against the devil is a godly life. And the local church that practices the truth 
that behaves what it believes is going to defeat the enemy. That would be one that you want to like cut out and just put it on the refrigerator. And so Paul's first thought in this spiritual war is that we fight best when we live out the gospel. When our manner of life is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the second part of verse 27 where Paul writes this. He says this, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And Paul's second thought is this, we fight best when we stand together. And so if you remember from our last time together, Paul was in prison and he wasn't sure exactly how all this was going to shake out. That's why he says that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, there's a little bit of uncertainty as to whether uh, what's going to happen to him. He's more confident that God is going to keep him on earth and he's going to, you know, to be able to help this church and, and others mature, but he's not sure. It could go either way. He could end up being released or he could become a martyr. Now, what Paul's going to do as we, as we move into this next section is he's going to change his illustration. He started off with this political verb and, and this idea of citizenship, and he's going to shift it now to more of an athletic illustration. The word translated striving together gives us our English word athletics. The Greek word is sunatheleo. And it means to work alongside or to struggle along or to strive with. And so he wrote that this church was to stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side. So what Paul was picturing is the church is a team. It's a team. And we're fighting together to win a victory. See, this church in Philippi was struggling with unity. If you were to read just a little bit further into the, the letter, you'd read ch in chapter four that there was division in this church, that there were two women who were at odds with each other. And as often happens, factions kind of develop and people choose sides and pretty soon a church splits. And unfortunately, in our world, that happens all too often. But it doesn't have to be that way. God wants us to strive together as a team. And I know what your experience was like playing sports growing up, and maybe you're still in that phase where you're kind of in, you know, competitive uh, athletics or competitive sports. But one of the greatest challenges a coach has is getting his team to gel and play as, together. My high school basketball team really struggled to play as a team. There was lots of egos and glory seekers that kept us from being a team. Again, it shouldn't surprise us that Paul is going to take a half a chapter to just talk about humility because humility is central to being a part of a team. Because in the church, if, you, if, if we're to play as a team, we have to know our role and be okay with our role. We have to be humble. See, at the end of the day, the goal is to win. It's not to make the newspaper. We had newspapers back in the day. They were printed newspapers that would just magically show up on your doorstep. And, and the glory seekers were more interested in their personal stats rather than the team's win and loss column. But we're to be different. Our goals are to be different. Our aim is to glorify our coach or our leader, Jesus. 
That's where our tensions often exist in the church. We have our own agenda. We, we are often seeking our own glory. We want the church to zig when the elder team thinks the church needs to zag. And at the end of the day, what we really need to do is express humility and yield. And that doesn't mean you can't appeal to authority, right? We appeal with everything we've got. But after we've appealed, we trust God with the outcome and, and we recommit to being a part of the team. Now, I played a point guard in high school and uh, my goal was to make the play happen and, and, and get the ball creatively into someone else's hands who would score. So I, I kind of, in, in a lot of ways, had a kind of an upfront role and a, a behind the scenes role. But for me, my goal was I wanted to rack up as many assists as I could. Because again, at the end of the day, it didn't matter um, if I was the leading scorer, if we lost. Our goal is to win. We want to win people. We want to win our friends. We want to win our neighbors. We want to win our neighborhoods. We want to win our community. We want to win the state. We want to win this nation. We want to win the nations to Jesus. And so Paul says that he wants this church standing firm in one spirit with one mind. If we commit to working together, where we know our opposition and we're aligned under Jesus, God is going to do great things through us. But ultimately, it will lead to gospel victory against the enemy. And that's happening here at New Hope. But there's a big world out there and, and we want it to happen more and more. And so as an aside, I just got to tell you, this is just me stepping away for just a moment. We are so blessed with the pastor team we have here at New Hope. I am so blessed that I get to work with these guys. I mean, I love being around servant leaders. And I will tell you, none of these men are glory seekers. They have a mindset to serve Jesus and you. And again, I am just so blessed that I get to strive together with them. And so Paul ends this section with this phrase, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What does that mean? Well, if you look at commentaries, there's a, a, a lot of different interpretations of, of what that means. Wearsby says this, he says, the faith of the gospel is the body of divine truth given to the church. And, and Melek Jr. says this, he says, the, the context assumes that people oppose the church and its message. That means that this construction probably relates to its taking the gospel to the world. Paul must have meant contending for the advance of the gospel. And really, these two scholars aren't that far apart in what they're saying. The gospel is the body of divine truth given to the church with the commission to take it to the world. But the point is this. We fight best when we stand together as one man, side by side, striving together. So how do we best do that? Well, two thoughts. The first is we keep our eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes on him. We keep reading and yielding to his word. We become people of greater character. The more godly character is developed in your life, the more you're able to discern what hill 
to die on. Why are there so many quarrels in the church? Because we want what we want. The book of James is real clear on that. And we take our eyes off of Jesus and we start focusing on ourselves. This past season with COVID has been really intense for a lot of pastors and church leaders. Y'all have so many different preferences on where you land. And I know we're kind of moving out of that season right now, but I think we can use that as a chance even to think about how can we grow as we move forward? Because if it's not masks, it's gonna be something else down the road. So at the end of the day, Jesus is our focus. If my elders want me to wear a mask, I'll wear a mask. Does it matter what I wanna do? Does it matter if I believe masks are effective? No. Christ is my focus. I'm gonna fix my eyes on him. Okay, so that's the first way. The other way we stand together is by being on mission together. Focusing on mission. God gave us the goal to love the world and proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of his son to every people, every tribe, every nation. So the churches that are on mission have less time to fight with each other because we're focused on helping with God's rescue effort rather than getting our own way. And that makes a huge difference. Which brings us to the last section we're gonna look at. And where Paul writes this, he says this in verse 28. He says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Jesus, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. And Paul's final thought for us is this, we fight best when we are prepared to suffer. And so Paul starts out by saying that we shouldn't be frightened by our opponents. And we haven't, we've already established that our real opposition isn't people, right? However, people very well could be conduits of evil. I mean, the media is full of stories of uh, of, what, of people doing evil and wickedness. And so the picture Paul paints for us is in saying that we shouldn't be frightened by our opponents is one of a horse shying away from battle. And so now that the balance of this is that we don't want to be, um, you know, we, want to be, we don't want to shy away from battle, but we also don't want to be stupid. How many times do you see Christians picking fights or, or dying on hills that aren't worth dying on? So we need wisdom and courage as we walk into battle. We need wisdom to know what to engage in and what not to engage in. There's lots of hills that I'm not gonna die on. And quite honestly, I, I cringe when I, when I hear the hills that many Christians choose to die on. Because what happens is when you die on a different hill than the gospel hill is you often never get to the gospel. And the gospel is the way that lives are transformed. So if you wanna see the world changed, See people come to Christ first. Get the Holy Spirit inside of them and then watch what God does in their life. And so I am willing to die on the gospel hill. And that's a hill that has anything to do with salvation. I, I, I look at that as a closed-fisted issue. Not like I'm gonna punch somebody, but just closed-fisted and it's non-negotiable. 
And then we need courage to step forward when the right scenario presents itself. Let's keep going in verse 28. Paul, then he tells us that your confidence in battle is assigned to your opponent of their destruction and of your salvation. So walking into the battle, Paul Paul says, can be a a faith-confirming experience. And then we get to verse 29 where Paul writes this. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So Paul, when he, he said it's been granted to us, he's saying that it's a privilege to suffer for Jesus' sake. Have you ever thought about it like that before? You've been given the gift of salvation as, as a gift and suffering for the sake of Jesus is to be viewed in the same way. You see that a bit in Acts 5 where uh, the apostles are arrested and they're beaten. And when they're released, they're like high-fiving each other and chest bumping because they've been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Look at that, Acts 5, 41. The writer of Acts says this, Luke says this. He says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy, worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. The early church saw it as a privilege to suffer for the name of Jesus. You know why? In the suffering that they went through and in our suffering, we actually get to experience something with Jesus that only comes through suffering. We get to experience a special fellowship with him. Paul talks about this a little later in this letter in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. He says that I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. Other translations actually say fellowship in his sufferings. And so Jesus meets us in our sufferings. And so we don't suffer alone. We actually develop greater intimacy with our Savior as we taste a bit of what he went through for our sakes. I mean, think about what Jesus went through. There was the pain of the cross. They came up with a new word, excruciate, because of the intensity of the pain. Then there was the humiliation and the shame of the cross, the mocking, the being spat on, the taunting. Remember, this is the creator of the universe. Then there was the severe rejection of those he came to rescue. And then there was the betrayal of close comrades and the broken fellowship with the father that's the the, at least a part of the package of the suffering that Jesus went through and so Paul ends this section with verse 30 where he writes this he says engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have and so Paul ended what we're looking at by helping this church realize that they weren't alone in their suffering. They're experiencing similar challenges that he walked through. Paul and this church were hundreds of miles apart, and yet they were going through many of the same sufferings and trials. And so as we close, it's vital that we develop a theology of suffering. Paul lived with this beautiful tension in the way he thought about suffering. On the one hand, he stayed soft toward human need, refusing to become bitter or disillusioned. 
You know, when someone steals something off of your truck, it's easy to become jaded or calloused toward the person who wronged you. And then on the other hand, he didn't accept suffering as good. He saw suffering as evil because it came from sin in the world. And so Paul believed that suffering was part of following Jesus. He saw suffering as um, as just a normal part of the Christian life. He might have actually heard one of the, his fellow apostles talk about Jesus' teaching on this. Jesus promised in John 16, that in this world we will have trouble and trial and, 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 and suffering and tribulation. And Paul saw it as a privilege to suffer for the sake of Jesus. that in his suffering, he got to fellowship with Jesus and when he went through to reconcile us to the Father. And so what do we do with Paul's last thought? Well, first we realize that suffering again is normal. And so if you're going through suffering, there's not something wrong with you. It's normal. Two, we, we allow suffering to push us to Jesus. And again, we get to experience something with him that we won't experience apart from suffering, a special fellowship with him as we share in the sufferings of Christ. And three, we realize that Christians all around the world are suffering right now. And so as you suffer, it gives you a chance to invite other people to pray for you and it reminds you to be praying for other people. And so we often can be deceived to think that all is well because we aren't in a physical war. However, however, the war we're in is real and has real eternal consequences. And so we need to be alert and ready. And Paul exhorts us to fight by living out the gospel, by standing together, striving side by side, united in the gospel and being prepared to suffer. The war we're in needs us to engage together, to fight together. And so let's pray that God will continue to prepare us and mobilize us for the reality that we live in. Let's pray. Father, let's thank you that you are... Um, you're with us. You, you have good purposes for us. And I was even thinking as we ended the first service, I just felt motivated to pray for the person who stole my DPF system. And God, so we lift him or her up. God, we lift them up. We don't know who it was, but we pray, God, that you would lead them to repentance. God, because apart from you in their lives, apart from the gift of salvation being extended to them, there is greater consequences coming than somehow being prosecuted for, for theft. And so God, ultimately, we want our hearts to be more concerned with the other person than even with our scenario. Because you've blessed us with the gospel. 
And we know you, God. So we pray that, God, you would use us as a church. You would, you would kind of continue to galvanize us to be a community that fights together. That we fight together. We fight the good fight of faith. We don't fight each other, but we fight together for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the name of Jesus. And we pray, God, that you, many more would come to faith in this community. And as we have chances to influence outside of, of our local context here, we pray that you would, you would use us and you would use those other people to have a ripple effect for the gospel. And we just lift all this up in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for being here today. I hope you guys have a great week.